It's really about embracing the humanity within ourselves. And when you don't treat people as a human resource, you treat them as a human being, that they will naturally perform at their optimal level. Now, Clockwork emphasizes a lot about the leverage of systems and processes, uh, the importance of that. We human beings flourish under structure, but it doesn't require more from people. It requires us to more understand people. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of The Goodness Exchange and host of The Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It's so hidden by the negative noise in media that I'm calling that wave a conspiracy of goodness. And on this podcast, you're going to hear from the folks that are in this wave genius people with amazing ideas that are changing our shared future. So if you're tuning out the negative news more and more, I won't, I don't blame you. But this podcast can be the place where you get connection, progress, remarkable innovation and inspiration, and you'll learn about countless ingenious people who are solving some of the most important problems of our time. Today, we have an amazing guest, Mike McCallowitz. Mike is an American nonfiction author with an expertise in business and financial success. He's also a children's book author and an extraordinary entrepreneur and a lecturer. I came across Mike's work from a friend who really recommended one of his books called Profit First for my children. This fellow said it changed the business and financial savvy of his own 20-something children. And I have to say, that started me on quite a journey with Mike Michalowicz's insights in business and money. He has a second book that we use every single day at the Goodness Exchange to help us prioritize our time. That book is called Fix This Next. But the book we're talking about today is called Clockwork. And the uh, subtitle is Design Your Business to Run Itself. I have to say, this book is one of the most important books I read in a long time about finding purpose, meaning, and work-life balance. If you want something to read that you're going to annotate in the the sidelines of and really feel different about the choices you have in front of you every day, it's this book. So welcome, Mike McCallowitz, author of Clockwork. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for that kind introduction, Linda. Yeah, I can tell you that that this is real. I my daughter and I, my daughter is my co-founder at the Goodness Exchange. We are using Fix It, Fix This Next every single day. And then Clockwork fell into my lap and I said, that's the one we need to talk about first. Thank you. So Mike, okay, I'm going to make this, give you the floor over and over again. Here's the thing. We are all either devoted employees or we're business owners or we're founders. And in this world of trying to sort out work-life balance, especially after what we all learned from the pandemic, yeah. I have to say this book felt so important. I don't know if I've annotated in another book quite like this. So tell us in your own words, what's the problem that Clockwork solves? Clockwork focuses on bringing about business efficiency, business performance, but not through the old kind of worn out approach of extract more from your people push them harder, optimize them. It's really about embracing the humanity within ourselves. And when you don't treat people as a human resource, you treat them as a human being, that they will naturally perform at their optimal level. Now, Clockwork emphasizes a lot about the leverage of systems and processes, the importance of that. We human beings flourish under structure, 
but it doesn't require more from people. It requires us to more understand people. This is this not calling people a resource is yeah. really a precious concept. I totally agree with you there. Okay, since our time is so short, I'm just going to hit some of the big points and hope that what we get through inspires people to read it. Talk to me about this first, I think, major concept that many of us miss. Talk about us about declaring your big promise. Yeah. So every business, your business, my business, all businesses is delivering things to our clientele. It could be a service or product, but it it brings about a transformation in an emotional state. They now have confidence or security. They feel happy. Whatever it is, we need to define clearly of all the things we deliver to them, what is the most important. As an example, myself, I'm an author, and uh, I do have a team here. We're we're small. We have 10 people, but we got a, a team. And of all the things I do, what impacts my readership the most is simplifying the entrepreneurial journey. So I call it entrepreneurship simplified. That is my big promise. That when you have an experience with me, hopefully what we're doing now or in one of the books I write, that someone will come in with a more complex perception of how to address something and hopefully leave here with a simplified perception. That's my big promise. It is critical that we know this because this is the starting point to the reverse engineering of our business. If we keep on delivering that promise over and over again at an exceptional level, we'll build the reputation for excellence. Imagine a doctor who says, uh, you know, I'm a heart surgeon. Well, maybe that's what she does, but the promise is I'm a successful heart surgeon and I'll bring you back to a full state of health. That's the big promise. Now that heart surgeon will likely do that process over and over again till they become masterful at it. I think many businesses don't do that. The big promise is non-existent. It's the all promise. Oh, I'll make you healthy. I'll make you wealthy. I'll, you know, make you happy. And by doing that, we actually dilute our ability to do anything. Well, I do a little bit of this. I dabble there. It's like a heart surgeon coming to you and saying, I'm interested in doing heart surgery. I've tried on the side and I'm new at it. Would you be interested? No, of course not, because our life's on the line. For a certain percentage of our client base, they see our service or our product so significant that's life altering. They want people to have a big promise and deliver on that big promise. That's why it's the starting point. And I guess it's like the alpha and omega. It's the ending point too. That right there is so important as we all try and search for search for purpose and meaning, you know, the great resignation. Yeah. I'm watching people leave pretty good jobs that don't feel like a purpose, a, a perfect fit, but maybe it's something about us. Maybe there's some pride in place that we haven't tried yet. I yeah, I, that could be, you know, I, I bifurcate the promise, meaning the deliverable, the commitment to my customers from my own purpose. My personal purpose is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. It ties back to experiences in my life. For many of us, it's trauma-based, experiential-based. There's a poignant moment in life or moments that define our character. I have this compulsion to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Entrepreneurial poverty, I define as people who see their life as one thing. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's expression of themselves. Maybe it's personal freedom to do what they want when they want. But the reality is struggle, enslaved by the business. And this gap is what I call entrepreneurial poverty. And I've lived it. And I know how painful it is. And I'm devoted to fix it because honestly, 
I need to permanently fix that for myself. I have the, I got to keep relearning that. So I never enter that space again. That to me is the purpose. And when we find purpose, it becomes a magnet. I'm pulled forward. I get up every morning. I can't wait to get started. I, I was excited for our interview. I actually joined early. I don't know if you knew. I was just sitting there. I'm like, let's get this going because I have a message that I need to serve because I'm compelled to serve it. The big promise is the deliverable. I don't think anyone necessarily cares about my purpose. Maybe that resonates, but that's my purpose. Your purpose is different. But what resonates is how my big promise is of service to you getting to your goals and achieving your accomplishments. So big promise is the deliverable. Purpose is the internal drive. And to your point, all of us have a purpose. And there's no purpose that's better or worse, greater or smaller than any others. I, I was talking with a fellow I met at a conference after I spoke, and he came up to me and said, I'm, I'm embarrassed that my big purpose or my life's purpose is not to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. It's not that huge. I simply want to put tin, dinner on the table for my two daughters. And I immediately said, well, let's not judge. Let's not compare. That is massive. And if it's massive to you, it is massively massive. And I said, well, what's the why behind that? Well, his wife had passed away in the last year. He was a single parent for the first time in his entire life. And he said, I work to provide for our family. The only time we get together is eating dinner. He goes, dinner is now everything to me. I'm like, my gosh, like now I get the context. If you want to compare, maybe that's bigger in some regards. It, it doesn't matter, but it's compelling to him. I actually, sadly, I don't remember his name. I ran into him years later by confluence of events. And he came to me and said, you know what? I was, I had to feed my daughters because I recognized that importance of that time. I came to recognize that many single parents don't have that time. I started an organization called, I can't remember the name of it, but basically time with your family for single parents to have meals ready to go so that they can have this immersive family experience every day of the week. It became a larger movement than just his family. That is a new purpose. So sometimes purpose fuels purpose and one's not better than the other. Maybe they're necessary in sequence, but we all have something that's driving us. And I think it's important what I learned through the three books that I'm going to mention and anything I mention or you do, it will be in the show notes. Or oh, thank you. So, yeah. Yeah. So people don't have to grab a pen really quick here. Yeah. I think, okay. So, and I think this is part of the great resignation is that it's, it was our knee jerk reaction <laughs> to this feeling of needing to find purpose. But I love what you pointed out. Do I have this right before we move on? That if you have a if you have a heart to heart with yourself and you figure yeah. out your greater purpose for this mm -hmm. guy, that's a perfect story to illustrate this. It doesn't have to be directly and immediately connectable to what we do in our working days, but maybe in our hearts, we can make that connection and be better at whatever we tend to be doing. Totally. Like you don't have to leave your vocation <laughs> to have a form of expression. A couple of things about purpose, at least for me, it's not something that I found overnight. It was always there. But I had to keep writing about it and expressing it. Now I have it down to a pithy term, eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. But it's not even about that. I had like help entrepreneurs no longer struggle. You know, like it doesn't matter, but I was just working on that over time. And over time, it became a little more digestible for me. The second thing is I realized, regardless of my vocation, I can make my business a platform of expression. I could sell toilet paper for a living and have it a form of eradicating entrepreneurial poverty. I could do it in a form that maybe is economical, maybe one that's environmentally responsible, maybe in some other way, or maybe I can't find a way to express it through my vocation. That's when we start becoming dampered in our performance. 
So I just invite people, don't judge your vocation as the outlet of expression. First, define how you want to express yourself through purpose and see how you can channel it through what you already do. It can reinvigorate you to the highest levels. If there is a conflict between vocation and expression, then just realize you're going to be compromised. And I think expression always has to win over. You got to lean to your purpose. And that's where you have to perhaps find a new vocation or a new way of expressing it within the company you're at, but find some new kind of capacity to express that purpose. Perfect. Because that leads to my next, the number one thing I wanted you to talk to us about is this concept of QBR. Oh, yeah. When I I looked it up on the internet, I was like, quarterly business revenue. I don't (laughs) know. That's funny. <laughs> and it was so not what you, uh, the big insight that you're bringing to the table. Talk to us about this critical fresh perspective. Yeah, I need to do some SEO work. Apparently get that domain or something. The QBR is something I inserted in the book and it's what represents the heart of an organization. So within our business, we talked about the most important thing we deliver to our clients, the promise. The question behind that is what activity makes that promise a reality? That's the QBR. Quick lesson of how that term came about. It stands for queen bee role. I use a technique called biomimicry, studied nature, identified how nature had figured out certain solutions. She's spent billions of years figuring things out and then translate that into a business application. Beehives are very efficient in achieving their big promise. Now their big promise is survivability, thriving of a colony. Of all the activities that allow a colony to thrive, the number one biggest determinant of its success is the production of eggs. Happens to be that there is a queen bee that produces eggs. All the bees are supportive of that process. They protect the eggs. They nurture and feed them. They have to do this constantly. They have other things they do. They sting people or sting things. They collect pollen and so forth. All of that stuff, while important, is secondary to the QBR. The definition of most is one. There can only be one most important thing. That's the activity. And if other activities are moving along, but eggs are not being produced, the colony's done. So every bee knows no matter what, egg production comes first. If there's not enough pollen to feed the colony, bees will actually leave the colony just to support egg production. That's how important it is. Well, in our business, we have a singular activity within the organization that is the foundational activity to support all other things. We us worker bees, if you will, need to know what that is, ensure that's always humming along. Now, there is a little kind of confusion around the analogy. In a beehive, the queen bee, there's a singular bee. So people say, oh, that means there's one most important person. That's not the case. The QBR, emphasis on R, role. The queen bee is expendable in a beehive. If she's failing to produce eggs, they spawn a new queen bee and the other one is gone, sometimes eaten. So, you know, what we're looking to do is identify the function, egg production, and then allow individuals or an individual, but usually individuals to support that function and protect them. I'll give you a quick example. FedEx, global brand, that's why it's easy to use. Their big promise is to deliver packages on time. They do many things. They have print shops. They have packaging that they can sell to you. They move packages around. They have a logistics department. They have customer service, all that stuff. But of all those, we have to ask ourselves, what one activity most delivers the big promise? On-time delivery, not packaging, not print shops, logistics. So FedEx has to always prioritize logistics. And if if FedEx said, you know what, screw logistics, we're not going to worry about QBR. We're going to make customer service our new QBR. That's where we're going to focus all of our key attention to. The headline news next week is FedEx doesn't know where a single effing package is, but they're really friendly about it. Like 
a multi-billion dollar corporation will go out of business in a week if they compromise it. Conversely, if they said, you know what, we're going to double down on logistics, we're going to ensure packages are delivered on time by moving them around, and we're going to close down our customer service department, the headline next week will be, you know, FedEx not answering phones, every package delivered on time. And FedEx may be troubled, but not compromised. They may have some backlash, not compromised. And, and that's not just a fictitious fictional story. Every year, FedEx actually experiences that. It's called Christmas time or the holiday season. There's a super demand on package flow that they can't handle with the people they have rolling those packages out. So managers leave their desks, they hop in the trucks, and they start driving too. Customer service and answering the phones actually drops, but deliveries go up because they have the manpower, the people power reoriented toward protecting the QBR. No, my brother was a pilot for Southwest, a senior pilot, yeah. and he would think nothing of cleaning the bathroom. He had gotten off that airplane in packed bags a few times in his life. And this is, I think this is kind of a foundational thing that at least for a time, Southwest was institutionalized. Oh, powerful. Yeah, that, that is employees seeing the holistic health of the business and stepping into things. Now, the QBR, I'd argue for airlines is safe travel. It's not a clean bathroom, meaning would you rather get there alive or rather get there in a clean bathroom? The consumer is going to prioritize alive. Now, they may get frustrated at times. I've had a case where I've flown and the pilot comes off and says, you know, there's so much snow out. We can't take off safely. And people get all grumpy and say, oh, I missed my flight. You're ruining my weekend. But conversely, could you imagine that pilot came out and said, hey, there's tons of snow out there. There's like a 20% chance we're going to make it, but I'm going, I'm going for it. Who's in with me? That would be absurd. So the QBR is safe travel. Secondary benefits are the clean bathroom, the fun expression, and so forth. I think it's United, maybe it's Southwest. Someone says, we, we care about customer service, but we prioritize your safety, or your safety is our priority. They're emphasizing the QBR. So when we look at our business, there's many things that we need to do, but there's one thing ever that's the mission critical thing. So identify that, have all employees attuned to that, so there's always safe flying. There, there's one last thing about airplanes. There's a reason when the pilot walks out of that cabin to use the bathroom that the flight attendants step into that cabin. That is because priority number one is safety. There always needs to be multiple people in the cockpit so that if a problem happens or one of the pilots says, you know, I'm taking this plane down, there's someone there to address that immediately. That's prioritizing safety. Figure out what you're most known for. Then those other things are kind of the wrapping around the package. Southwest is known for an ex extremely happy and fun experience, but the number one thing is it's a safe way to travel. Well, you know, to put a finer point on that, as soon as you started helping me understand this even a little bit better, so I'm glad we kind of branched yeah, out. Yeah, that was awesome. So I can tell you exactly what their QBR was at that point, the reason yeah. why he tells the stories. It was pushback on time. There you go. Right, on time. That's right. And they were famous, and they're so famous for how they turned the flights, right? Yes. Yeah. So I would say their big promise is on-time travel. Therefore, the QBR, to your point, becomes the pushback. How do we turn these planes fast enough to deliver on what customers know us for? Yeah, I agree. Pushback from the gate. That's what he was saying. If, it, if, if there's suitcases still on the ground, I'm out there helping them. So, okay. So before you in the book, you talk about the simplified, more effective way to find your QBR. So now that we're talking about it, you want to share just a little bit about that? Because I've got a few more other questions, but- Yeah, let's go through it real quick. Clockwork's now in a revised and expanded edition. I coincidentally have my hands here for a rapid oh, well. display. But this is the revised and expanded edition. 
in the prior edition, oh, you there we go. Oh yeah. I had it as a deductive reasoning, write down all the things you do and start removing what's unlikely to be. And the final one is the one that's most likely to be. It ended up being too confusing and taking too long. Now the simplified process is start off with your promise. Here's how you find your promise. You can self-determine say, I want to be known for on-time flights. Or you can simply ask your customers, what do you feel I do that's most important to you? So go to your existing customers and look for the common thread. They say, the most important thing is the cleanliness of your work or the, whatever it may be. Then you can say, okay, I accept that. That's going to be my big promise. I'm going to be known to deliver the most clean environment if maybe I'm an office cleaning business. I'm going to be delivering the most clean office. And then we figure out, well, what do we need to do do that? And that becomes the QBR. What activity ensures that? Is it thoroughness? Is it the chemicals that we use or the ingredients we use? And you don't have to be the same as your competition. One office cleaning can say the cleanest. Another one could say the greenest. Another one could say the friendliest. Like maybe they come during the day when you're actually there. I've never seen a cleaner come during the day and they actually chit-chat it up with you. So we can pick what we stake our reputation on. I'll give one final example. There was a company in my space. I used to be in computer networks as a computer nerd, computer guy. We all did the same thing. Then one computer company came out called Geek Squad and they said, we're going to be the geekiest. They weren't better in their technology or their skills. They were better in the way they dressed and presented themselves. It was fun and engaging and they dominated the industry. All right. So I want to make sure that we get to another concept that, so I need to say this about what you just spoke about. I talk to usually a lot of nonprofit founders, people who are trying to change the future for hundreds, if not millions of people. And I think this concept of QBR is really, really important to a lot of nonprofits. So I'm going to share, share this concept over and over again in this world. We're all struggling with how to make a difference and have an impact in the world. And I thank you for this insight. It's really fresh. I'm glad we've gotten to the weeds. Yeah. Okay. I want to share another one that just, I thought was so counterintuitive, but once you know it, you can't unsee it. Is this four week vacation? Like when I was like, oh, chapter on the four week vacation. But then when I actually thought about how you were putting it, it is the litmus test for whether you're running the company or it's running you. Yeah, I levered a technique called the parade. I'm sorry, the Parkinson's theory or Parkinson's law. Nothing to do with Parkinson's disease, but Parkinson was a theorist around how we use resources. One example is with food. The more food put in front of us, the more we're going to consume. What he argued is the greater the resource, the more our consumption. And it's true for time. The more time we're given to do something, the longer it takes. If you and I discuss a contract and I say, I'll get you the agreement in one week it'll likely take me to the end of the week to get to you. Same people, same parameters, but I say, I'll get to you in one day. I'll get it done in one day. I work through the night or whatever. So the constraint of a resource makes us use it more efficiently and more innovatively. And that's the key. What I found in business is so many business owners and business leaders make the business depend upon them. They can't take a vacation. When they do, it's a cram and scramble technique. You lead up to a vacation, you cram as much as you can And then when you come back from that week's vacation, if you didn't work there, which many people do, then you scramble to recover. That that enforces more dependency of the business on the owner. We need the owner to take a vacation, not because the owner needs it as much as the business needs a vacation from the owner. A four vacation is a long enough cycle for most businesses that every element of the business will be touched on. Most businesses go through a monthly cycle of 
landing prospects and clients, serving them, delivering products and services, collecting bills, closing out the end of the month. If a business owner can be fully disconnected, then the business can run without them. I call it an intentional disruption. Growing up as a kid, I remember my grade school, we used to have fire drills all the time. The bell would go off, everyone stand up and walk out single file as a drill. We got used to this so that when an actual fire happened, it actually happened in my school, everyone got up and evacuated safely without anyone being harmed because we had prepared for it. It isn't a question of uh, if you're going to take a fortification, it's just when. Is it going to be deliberate or is it going to be thrust upon you because of illness or something unexpected because of life's circumstances? We need to prepare the business to run without us. So when that inevitability comes, it can. Here's the other bonus. When a business can run without you, you have the freedom to do what you want within the business. I do a fork vacation every year for the last five years. Actually, last year, I took a nine-week vacation. And it's freed me up to do the two things I like to do. I love to write books. I love to be a spokesperson, what we're doing now. And that is my primary work. Okay, so we, we need to wrap up here, but I want you to to tell me for all the people who are not owner founders, they're team members and they they this is starting to resonate. And I gotta tell you, the book is for anyone yes. who has any kind of an organizational bent. Responsibility, or, or yeah, leaders. Yes, yeah. it really is. So tell me what one thing that you what one insight you want to leave people with or recommend a chapter or what have you that you think is would really be fundamentally important before we close. Yeah, maybe I'll do a, a double if you don't mind. What One is for the people who don't have ownership in the business, but you can have psychological ownership. And in fact, that brings about the greatest empowerment of a company. When I left my first four vacation, I was afraid that my colleagues would say, oh, you're drinking Mai Tais on the beach as we sweat in the sweatshop here. You're making money off our sweat. But what the reality was, it was empowerment. My team said, oh my gosh, you're handing us the keys. You believe us that much. We had one person elevate up the ranks very quickly over a few years from an assistant to the president of our company because of fortifications. Other people have moved to other ranks and fulfill other roles because I wasn't blocking it by doing the work I did. Again, we're a small company of 10 people, but these nine people when I was gone, where it's gone, elevated themselves to a higher level. It's the ultimate empowerment. And they took psychological ownership of the business. They feel more in control and that's a big deal. The last tip, and this is specifically for owners. If you own a business, I want you to realize the number one job a business owner has is not to do the job. It's to be a creator of the job. Uh, there was a study by the SBA, 14% of population will ever start a business. 20% of those people will ever be successful sustaining the business. That means 3% of the population runs successful businesses. And 97% of the population is looking for a good or great, reliable job. They want to work for good companies. If we, the business owner, is doing the work, we're stealing the job from people who want the work. Be a creator of jobs, not the doer of jobs. Terrific. I'm going to hold the book up here. I'm not sure if our lighting is good enough, but it is a beautiful I can see book. It. <laughs> it is a beautiful book. And I will, Mike's got to go, but I will continue to share things and insights that I've got marked in here for a little bit more here on the podcast. But thanks so much, Mike. And I hope we get to talk about the other two books sometime soon. Oh, it'd be a joy. I'd love to come back. Thanks for okay. having me. Thanks. So. Bye. So I want to say a few more things as Mike's busily improving the world. It would have been easy for me to, to look at Mike's work and think, oh, does that really fit in with what we're doing at the Goodness Exchange? And I got to tell you, it fundamentally does. We've talked about the book Clockwork today. 
I hope to interview Mike about another book that I mentioned we use every day. It's called Fix This Next. Mike has a special mind for process and purpose. And and I have to tell you that these books are fundamentally changing the way my daughter and I, my co-founder is my daughter at the Goodness Exchange. These books are fundamentally helping us feel like we have a roadmap, like we're not just doing trial and error through this whole grand experiment. And I think this is really important for folks who really care about the work they're doing, social entrepreneurs in particular, because there often isn't a roadmap. If you're if you've got some concept that you want to share with the world that's new, that's fresh, that you see a need for, there likely is not a roadmap. So authors, thought leaders like Mike Michalowicz have put their insights down in usually really, really well-organized way. And if you're not a reader, I would recommend picking up these two books and have a pen in hand and see, how, see if they don't resonate. But today, the clockwork book that we talked about, I have to tell you, we didn't get to half the questions I wanted to ask. But Mike has Mike has insights in that book about these the way we decide to handle ideas. We can trash them, we can transfer them, we can trim them, or we can treasure them. And that chapter alone is a mind-bogglingly important concept about what to do with these long to-do lists we all have. On and on. I could go on. I really appreciate the time that Mike gave us. And I know that whether you're trying to start something, whether you're in deep, whether you work for somebody that you really care about the mission, or perhaps you're doing work that you know has potential, but maybe the owner founder has not stumbled upon these insights. There's ways for you to bring this work into the place you are showing up in every single day and find what you're uniquely built to contribute. Maybe it's sharing these concepts. So thank you very much for joining us on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast today. I have been wanting to get Mike on this podcast for about eight months now, and I'm very grateful that he showed us a few of these insights, and I hope you'll join Mike and I in the future for the kind of insights that help us make leaps in our day-to-day lives so that we can have all the joy and wonder that we always talk about here on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Thanks.